Welcome, I'm Pastor Abraham, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Sun Valley Podcast. You can check out our church on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for worship thoughts, devotionals, and the latest events happening at our church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. Uh, today, we are going through our series called The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. And in this series, we journey through some of the major and minor stories and writings of the Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And we're actually running up now on a little over two years. We started back in September of 2018 from the very beginning with the book of Genesis. And now we are in the book of Isaiah. And throughout this amazing journey of the Bible, we have discovered this radical and powerful love of Jesus that is written in every page of the Bible's history. And so if you've missed some of those sermons, or if you've missed some of our uh, stories from that series, you are, they are available not only on our YouTube page as the full service, but they're also available as just the message on podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that's Spotify, Google Podcasts, Beaker, uh, or, or Apple Podcasts that are available so you can listen to them on the go and, and catch up if you so desire. But today, we are going to be continuing our look at the book of Isaiah. And so we're going to do something a little different than we usually do with our usual sermons. Every once in a while, we we take a break from looking at the stories of the book, and we take a look at the structure or composition of the book itself. So today, we're going to take a brief look at the composition of the Bible, just a brief, brief overview, and the the book of Isaiah, and, and we're going to talk about how its composition might apply to you and I, how it applies to us. So this is just kind of like the Bible 101. This is not going to be a comprehensive guide on the structure of the Bible, just some overview to help you understand just a little bit better. The Bible is a book that spans quite a few different centuries. Now, archaeological history isn't the clearest on some of the earlier writings of the Bible, like the stories in Genesis or the stories of Judges or Joshua, but there is agreement that at the very least, the stories of the Bible span about 3,000 years before our current time right now. And while there is evidence of early Semitic farmers, this would have been people kind of like Israel, kind of like the Jews, uh, living in the land of Egypt, and evidence of many cities in Canaan that Joshua talks about, there isn't complete agreement among the scholars and the archaeologists about how it takes place and when it takes place in some locations. There's disagreement in some of the earlier texts of the Bible, where things become less contentious or less disagreeable is during the reign of the kings after King Solomon. There is general agreement on the historical events after the split of Israel into the two kingdoms. If you're unfamiliar with this story, after Solomon passes away, he leaves his kingdom, the whole kingdom of Israel, to his son. His son, unfortunately, makes some bad decisions, and the nation gets very frustrated with him, and so they end up splitting the nation into two, all 12 tribes. Ten of them go to the north, they follow a different king, and they become the kingdom of Israel. And two of the nations, this is the nation of Judah and Benjamin, stay to the south, and they follow the kings of the line of David. Now, archaeologists have found very clear evidence of of Israel's biblical history from sources outside of the Bible, from some of the nations that surround Israel and Judah. So this is kind of the time period where things become a bit more clear for archaeologists and for scholars. Now, Israel would have been much like any other developing nation in the Mesopotamian region. Most cultural groups did not have a system of writing until later on in their historical development. 
The systems of writings would have been prominent and a bit more common as the nations established schooling systems for priests and judges and ancient legal systems. So Israel's biblical history, a history that extends back in stories and narratives all the way through Moses and through Abraham, would have been primarily passed orally. They would have been spoken words, spoken stories. Uh, this long history of Israel wouldn't have been primarily written down. They wouldn't have had a writing form that early, but rather these stories would have been passed down orally through word of mouth. But eventually, as we have the Bible now, things would have been written down. They would have written down, uh, been written down by hand. They would have been written down on parchment and papyrus, on scrolls, by either scribes or priests, by people who had been taught to read and to write. And unfortunately for the people of the time, I'm sure you can guess this, there were no printers, there were no scanners, no photocopiers, no big office supply store so that you can make copies of your scrolls. Every single scroll had to be copied by hand. This means that a scribe, if you wanted to take a certain text or a writing to a different part or a different city, if you wanted to have a copy of that, a scribe or a priest would have to copy down an original text or a copy of a copy, and then they would have that copy, and then they would take it to their temple or to their palace or to wherever it was that they had it. Most people at the time actually memorized their scriptures because it was so rare to have access to a written copy. So most of these people, they had their, their Tanakh, their, their first five books of the Bible, memorized because they didn't have a system of writing yet under which they could kind of copy down and write all these scrolls. They didn't have it compiled in books the way that we do. And so it was much more difficult for them to have access to actual writing implements. So at some point in Israel's history, the stories were passed through generation, through generation, through generation, and they went from being exclusively oral stories or passed down by word of mouth to being written down on parchments and scrolls. And so much of that writing is said to have taken place during or, or after the Babylonian captivity. You see, Israel was a prominent nation for the time, and so once Babylon had officially conquered both Israel and Judah, the people felt a need to write down their stories, to preserve their history, to preserve their faith, and so they began writing down all of these oral traditions. And so the Bible's Old Testament began to take shape with the stories being written down, being copied, being circulated among the people. Needless to say, the Bible wasn't written in modern-day English. It was written in a, in a much older version of Hebrew. In fact, the original writings, the writings that we have, have no vowels. The Hebrew letters or the Hebrew writing was all consonants. And so it was kind of a bit of a, a guesswork for archaeologists and scholars to figure out how the words fit together. They, all, they actually even didn't have spaces they didn't have punctuation. And so you can imagine an entire book was just a bunch of consonants written down without spaces or, 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 or commas or, or periods or delineations or any of that. And so it took a lot of work for scholars to be able to figure out what the original writings would say. They would use context from other nations, from other, from other areas, and so they would better understand what the Hebrew writings were actually saying. And we don't have, we don't have original or first copies of these ancient manuscripts. That what we, that's, manuscripts is what we call 
the old versions of the text. Because the scrolls and the manuscripts that we have now are the ones that have survived over centuries, copied by editors and scribes and priests, and we don't have the originals, the very first writings. We don't have those. They were lost to time. They were lost to conquest, to destruction, to decay, to erosion, etc. There's so much that can go wrong with these ancient texts. And so we've lost the original writings, but we do have copies of copies of copies from scribes and priests and, and the Levites and whatnot. And so these scribes and priests, they served not only as copyists, but also as editors. Because the stories were so ancient for Israel, some of the geographical or historical context would not have made sense to the average reader reading the story hundreds of years later. Much the same way that when we read our Bible now, if we're not too familiar with the geography of Israel or of ancient Israel, you hear these stories of, of these different cities and these different areas, and there's no mental picture for you. You just kind of take in the information. You have no context for what it is unless you have a map with you or unless you're familiar with the ancient areas and the ancient names of the cities. It's very difficult sometimes to understand the context. So these scribes and these editors would sometimes add their own context into the story to explain better what the story meant or, what the, how, or how the story was portrayed or where the story took place. And it was meant so that the people of the day could better understand what was being said and the significance of what was being said. And even though there are editorial additions to the, to the text, to the Bible, the spirit, the message, or the heart of the text was the highest priority for these scribes and for these priests. And so that was to be preserved. So that being said, the older a copy is of a manuscript, the more closely and accurately it reflects the original story and text. And all of this applies not only to the Old Testament, but also to the New Testament as well. See, the Gospels themselves, they weren't written as it occurred. People weren't writing down the stories of Jesus as they were happening, but rather they were written and compiled after all of these events had occurred. In fact, the earliest Gospel we have dates to about a decade or two after the death of Jesus. Now, why is all of this important? I want us to understand that the Bible that we have now is a result of centuries of processing and compilations of oral traditions, of editorial editions. And this does not in any way take away from the significance or importance of the Bible. So we believe that the Bible is, is divinely inspired. That means that God used those people, those scribes and those editors. He used the cultural and societal backgrounds of the time to mold the text, to mold the Bible and these stories into what we have today to best reveal to us the character of his love and the work of Jesus, the Messiah. You see, God is still and charge, and he is using those stories passed down from generation to generation over centuries to lead us into his salvation through grace and truth. So now we come to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a real prophet who lived in the 8th century, and he prophesied to the people of the kingdom of Judah. Around his time, much of Israel to the north, the kingdom to the north, would have already been destroyed and conquered by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were now posing a real threat to Judah, conquering much of the countryside. And so Judah, or so Isaiah, prophesied to Judah not of Assyrian destruction, 
but rather Babylonian destruction, something that hasn't even yet come to be, a nation that wasn't even on the radar of threat for Judah. He prophesies of the coming of this Babylonian nation, of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of its temple long before uh, Babylon was even a threat to Judah. In fact, the very prophetic words of Isaiah of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple wouldn't take place for another 100 to 150 years. But Isaiah's word, being a true prophet of God, eventually came true. And in 586 BCE, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple. And the story tells us that he stole the holy articles of the temple and took them back to Babylon. So I want to read to you just a couple of verses. We're going to kind of explore different sections of Isaiah. We're going to talk about kind of what this means. And so we're going to go to our first verse today, Isaiah chapter 39, verses 5 through 7. And it should be available for you on the screen if you want to read with us here. Isaiah 39, 5 to 7. This is Isaiah prophesying to the king Hezekiah about the destruction that is coming at the hands of Babylon. And so he says in verse 5, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all of your predecessors and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So here in chapter 39, 5 to 7, we have Isaiah prophesying to Hezekiah, who's the king of Judah at the time, that Babylon would come, would conquer Jerusalem, would conquer Judah, destroy the temple, take away the son's kings to serve the king in Babylon. And if you read throughout the whole book of Isaiah, it's clear through Isaiah chapters 1 through 39 that Isaiah, the 8th century prophet, is the one speaking in that time period. He's prophesying not only to Hezekiah but to the kings before him that there is this destruction that is coming by Babylon that hasn't yet taken place. However, we begin to see this shift take place after chapter 39. Things begin to change and, and change direction after chapter 39. Chapters 1 through 39 contain a lot of first-person and historical accounts of Isaiah, this 8th century prophet. And they also contain something that is prophetic prose. Now, prose is a literary term, and prose basically means this. Prose is language in its ordinary form without metric or structure. The opposite would be poetry. Poetry has metric and structure. You might have heard of iambic pentameter when you study the, the works of Shakespeare in English class. That's kind of metric and structure, right? So prose isn't metric and structure, it's just kind of words, it's speeches, it's sermons, something like this we're talking right now would be prose. So much of chapters 1 through 39 contain these first-person historical accounts and prophetic prose. But beginning in chapter 40, we stop hearing the name of Isaiah. The name of the 8th century prophet Isaiah, is the last time we hear that is in chapter 39. And we don't have any more historical or first-person accounts of Isaiah. Even the style of writing begins to change at the beginning of chapter 40. We stop seeing prophetic prose in chapters 40 through 66, and instead we see prophetic poetry. The prophecies begin to have metric they begin to have structure with difference from the, which differs from the prophetic writings and styles of Isaiah in chapters 1 through 39. 
Isaiah also prophesied that Babylon's conquest of Jerusalem would be a punishment for their sins. And the opening lines of chapter 40, verses 1 to 2, kind of imply that that punishment has already taken place and that Israel has already paid for their sins. So let's read Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 2. 40, verses 1 to 2 says this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Or be comforted, be comforted, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This expression of receiving double punishment, double for your sins, just basically means that the punishment is completely fulfilled. There's nothing left. That's what that phrase means. Now Isaiah 42, 22 to 25, speaks of Jerusalem's destruction in past tense, as if it's already occurred. Now you remember, chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah prophesies of Babylon to come, that they would destroy Jerusalem. But here, switching in chapter 40, 40 and onwards, it seems like all of the writings begin to take place as if, as if the events were past tense, not future tense anymore, the way Isaiah had prophesied. So Isaiah 42, 22 to 25, says this, But this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. Prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot. This is all past tense. With no one to say, send them back. Which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Who handed over Jacob to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom they have sinned or whom we have sinned? For we would not follow his ways and they did not obey his laws. So he poured, so the Lord, he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. So these texts show us that Israel has already been plundered. They've already been taken into exile. That's why the verse say, who will send them back? Now this, all of these events would have taken place 100 to 150 years after the time of the 8th century prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 43, we find a passage of God's mercy that is extended to Israel in Babylonian captivity. Again, this is in Babylonian captivity, not a future tense, but present tense, in captivity. Hundreds of years, or 100, 150 years after Isaiah. Isaiah 43 verse 14 says this, This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your King. This is what the Lord says. He who has made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness, streams in the wasteland. God reminds his people of the captivity that they experienced in Egypt. And he says, remember when I made a way through the sea, when I made a way for deliverance from the hands of the Egyptians, when I delivered you from slavery there, remember when I snuffed out Pharaoh's chariots like a wick to rise no more. He says, remember that. And he says, behold, I am doing a new thing. I will also deliver you 
from Babylon, from the captivity you're experiencing now. And so he promises to do this new thing, that he's making a way in the wilderness to bring deliverance to his people from Babylonian captivity. So it would appear that from the way the book is written, that there seems to be a time jump of about 100 to 150 years between chapters 39 and 40. Now again, we see another potential time jump between chapters 55 and and 56. Isaiah 56 says this, For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases, pleases me and holds fast to my covenant, to them, to these eunuchs, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Listen to this verse eight. The sovereign Lord declares, the one who gathers the exiles of Israel says this, I will gather still others to them, to Israel, besides those already gathered. And I don't want to explore what the passage means fully because we're actually going to explore that next week. And we're going to see this beautiful promise that God gives to his people to remember their names within his temple walls. But he promises this. In this chapter of Isaiah 56, he promises that he will draw his people near to the altar, to his house, to his temple. Now, this couldn't be the temple of Solomon because that temple was already destroyed completely by Babylon. That already happened a couple of years earlier. So it's likely referring to the second temple built by the exiles who returned to Judah in the time of King Cyrus of Persia. Now, those are stories that we find in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But this, this temple, the second temple, as it's called, would not be built for another 70 years after the original exile from Judah into Babylon. And again, this, this last verse that we read in Isaiah 56, it makes reference to the exiles being drawn out, being saved from, uh, from Babylon. God says this, he says, I will still gather other exiles Besides the exiles I've already gathered, and I will bring them into my people. God says this, it's kind of present tense, it says, I've already gathered you back into Judah, 70 years after the events of the destruction of the temple. It says, but still, I will still gather more unto you. So we see another potential time jump between Isaiah 55 and Isaiah 56 that shifts from being in captivity in Babylon to about 70 years after the events of the exile to returning to Judah, building the temple and rejoicing in what God has done. So what do we do with this? I'm sure you're wondering, because this is a lot of information to take in. What does this mean for the book of Isaiah? Now, there are a couple of different interpretations by a bunch of different scholars, some more popular than others. The first idea is that all of Isaiah was written by Isaiah the prophet, the 8th century prophet, and that at some point Isaiah switches from writing in the present tense about the present to writing about the future in the present tense. The idea by those scholars is that Isaiah foresees the future. He writes in the present tense to give the future Israelites hope. 
It's a possibility. And the second idea, this is one of the most prominent ideas, the one that scholars believe the most with some nuances and specifics, is that they divide the book of Isaiah into three distinct sections based on the changes in the timeline, assuming that there are at least three main authors. So they presume that proto-Isaiah, which means first Isaiah, wrote chapters 1 through 39. This would have been Isaiah the prophet who lived in the 8th century. Then they assume that an anonymous author who lived during the exile called Deutero-Isaiah, that's what they call him, second Isaiah, they assume he wrote chapters 40 through 55. And another anonymous author living after the exile called Trito-Isaiah or third Isaiah wrote chapters 50, 50, 56 to 66. These authors are also referred to commonly as first, second, and third Isaiah. Now, second and third Isaiah were likely followers or students of the prophet Isaiah, of the first Isaiah, and they carried on those writings. The idea of first, second, and third Isaiah is the most prevalent theory among scholars based on the evidences that they found. But in reality, we can't be 100% sure. Now, some believe that second and third Isaiah may have been editors, and they simply compiled other writings or sermons or speeches from first Isaiah, and they placed them into their own context. Or, another possibility, is that second and third Isaiah continued the same prophetic work of first Isaiah, delivering the heart of the message of hope to the people in exile, second Isaiah, and to the people who returned from exile, third Isaiah. Now, as far as we know, the book of Isaiah has always existed as one singular collection. It has always been called the book of Isaiah. In fact, the oldest copy of Isaiah that we have is from the Dead Sea Scrolls, dating to around 175 years BCE. The Dead Scrolls, if you're not familiar, are Old Testament manuscripts that, that have been found in, in, a, in a cave in the Dead Sea. They are the oldest manuscripts that we have found to date. So the scroll of the book of Isaiah that was found among these, this, these scrolls is one single scroll from end to end. No divisions, no signals from a copyist that there is some sort of change or shift between chapters 30 and, 49, and, and chapter 40. And this means that despite the arguments of authorship, Isaiah as a book is meant to be read as one cohesive book. The story is the same. It, it kind of progresses through the hope of Israel. It's a book that is, that is centered on the hope and the salvation of God and the salvation that God would bring for his people. And while scholars disagree about exactly how to interpret the signs of multiple authorship, there's a common thread here. The thread is that the prophet Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah with help. It's possible that it is simply a collection of his writings or spoken words. It is also possible that his original writings were expanded on by later priests who lived during and after the exile, we don't know for certain which theory is correct or if, if, or if any of them are correct, in fact. There's so much we don't know and we can only really speculate based on the knowledge we have. But regardless of which theory you choose to subscribe to or believe, whether it's a single authorship and see the differences as different movements by the same author, or whether you choose to see it as multiple authors extending the writings of Isaiah, I want ourselves to see us in the continued work of Isaiah. You see, first Isaiah spoke of messages of warning for the people of Judah, but he also spoke messages of hope. Second Isaiah spoke of deliverance, of the coming of the Messiah, the hope of the Messiah. And third Isaiah spoke of the work of the Messiah, 
and what it would look like when God fulfills his promises. And even though the book of Isaiah doesn't end, or even though the book of Isaiah ends after 66 chapters, the story itself doesn't end there. And now this takes us to our one and only lesson for today. Our lesson today is this. The story continues with us. I want to invite the band to come on up as as we begin to wrap up here. You see, second and third Isaiah, they continue the writing tradition of first Isaiah. They continue to promote hope in the Messiah. They continue to urge trust and faithfulness in God. They continue to lead the people around them into relationship with a loving and forgiving God. And so I want us to see ourselves, I want you to see yourself as fourth Isaiah. First and second and third Isaiah are in the Bible, but I want you to see yourself as fourth Isaiah. I want you to see that you too can continue the faith tradition of Isaiah. That you can pick, where, pick up where he left off and continue the work of Isaiah in your own community and in your present day. Now, we know there's a big time jump between third Isaiah and us now. And in that span of time, humanity has seen the arrival of the Messiah and Jesus, the baby born in a manger. In that time span, humanity has witnessed the beginning of the fulfillment of God's deliverance. And we ourselves, we ourselves are witnesses to God's mercy, to God's forgiveness, to God's faithfulness. We are witnesses to a God who acts when we are in need. To a God who hears our cries and responds with mercy. We are witnesses to a God who brings us from the different exiles in our lives and brings us into his promise. See, the story of Isaiah doesn't end with third Isaiah, doesn't end at the 66th chapter of the book of Isaiah. And in fact, the Bible doesn't end at the 66th book, the book of Revelation, the story of the Bible, of God's goodness. It continues in your life. We can be Fourth Isaiah, we can continue this faith tradition of promoting and sharing the hope of the Messiah to come, of Jesus, who has promised to come back and to set all things right. And while our own stories might not be included in the pages of the Bible, our stories can bring and inspire hope to the people around us. You see, we get to testify of the majesty and the wonder of the God that we serve. A God who was willing to come down in human form to start off as a vulnerable infant baby, to grow up and live in perfect communion with God so that he could be a sacrifice for us because he loves us. His story doesn't end with the Bible, the story continues with us. And God calls us to be fourth Isaiah. He calls us to pick up where third Isaiah left off. He calls us to continue this faith tradition. He calls us to share the birth of a savior. He calls us to share the joy of Christmas, of what Christmas really means. You see, he calls us 
to share that heaven has come in the form of Jesus. You see, God calls us to be forth Isaiah to share the hope of Jesus. Amen.